We are in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Talked about the fact that Paul really, uh, it, 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 it's almost as if he just emotionally erupts in a couple of passages. There's some sequence, but then we're in a section where he's defending himself. Remember, we talked about the fact that when we looked at last week's message in the scripture, it was the idea that the people that were attacking him, that had come in behind him, were saying, look, the Jews don't even listen to you. Why should we listen to you? And his response is, well, they have a veil. But then he said, now, if though they listen to the message of the Holy Spirit, that veil is lifted and they can come to Christ if they so choose. Then we come to today's passage. Now, it almost seems as if he gets caught and he sort of jumps to something and then he'll come back to the other. But we're going to look at two verses today, verses 17 and 18 in chapter 3, that are kind of Paul, something triggers when he says the Lord is the Spirit, it triggers something and he runs to it and then he's going to come back to the other in chapter 4. But when he makes these sort of jumps, these sort of takeout passages, Particularly here, the statement in it and the truth in it is unbelievably powerful. Tomorrow, people will either get up or not get up. And not every person that doesn't get up is for this reason, but most people that don't get up. It's because whatever they thought was worth getting up for doesn't work for them anymore. So they're in a huge depression. Most of us that do get up, we're still thinking that something that we think is worth getting up for still works. For some people, it's family. For some people, it's money. Go to work, make a lot of money, I'll have a certain house, certain car. For some people, it's power. There are all sorts of different reasons, but the ultimate reason is inside this little takeout passage that Paul walks us through. Now, I want you to take a deep breath. Relax, because we're going to be here a little while. We are camping out on these two verses. There are several phrases, a couple of metaphors that he throws in one sentence. We're going to walk through them. We're going to look at them. At the end, we're going to come out to exactly where you and I are supposed to be. And it's a great end, so just walk with me, but listen carefully. The first thing he does is make a statement that is totally contradictory. You don't really see it so much in the English, but here's what he says in verse 17. Remember last week, but the Lord is the Spirit. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. That is a contradictory statement. At least one in five people in the Roman Empire when Paul wrote this were slaves. Now, there's a Greek word for slave, doulos. We find it all through the New Testament. The Greek word for the slave owner, the one who owned the slave. He controlled his life. He told the slave when to get up. He told the slave when to go to bed. He told the slave how to dress. He dictated to him exactly how he lived. That is the Greek word kurios. The Greek word kurios is throughout the New Testament referenced to Jesus. When it says here, it says the kurios is the spirit. And where the spirit of the kurios is, there is freedom. How do you have freedom when you're enslaved to Jesus? I mean, the American idea, and really virtually every person's idea of freedom is, I can do what I want to do, when I want to do it, how I want to do it, where I want to do it. I can say what I want to say, I can live the way I want to live. That's our idea of freedom. It is not 
the Bible's definition of freedom. Now, remember we looked at this last week, Romans 8. Here's what he says. No condemnation of those in Christ Jesus. Romans 8, 1, 8, 2. But the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, now listen, has set you free, there's the freedom, from the law of sin and of death. Now, what does that mean? Here's what he says. What was impossible in the law, in that it was weak through the flesh, God, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and condemning that sin in the flesh, that the righteous requirements of the law might be filled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Freedom in the Bible is that I now have the ability to live out God's command. Prior to Christ. You don't have that ability. You're going to have something in your life more important than God. Some of you in this room do that. You're going to put something before God. You're going to cheat on your spouse. You're going to lie about somebody else. You're going to covet what your neighbor has. We can't stop those things in the flesh. But he says, now that the Spirit indwells us, and the Spirit empowers us, and we rely on the Spirit, and the Spirit does His work in our life, now through the power of the Holy Spirit, we are enslaved to Jesus, and therefore we have the ability now, the freedom, and the ability, and the power to do exactly what God tells us to do. So when the Bible talks about freedom, it's not an American idea. It talks about freedom as obedience to the Creator. And obedience you could not live out without the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in you. That's why he says, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. If the Spirit of the Lord is not in you, you don't have freedom. You can't stop who and what you are. The only way to be able to stop it, and the only way to have the freedom to stop it, is if the Holy Spirit empowers me. Now, what does that really mean? And how does that really work? I mean, we talk about that, but how does that really work? Now, he gives a couple of metaphors. Go to verse 18. Listen carefully. We're going to walk through everything so that we understand fully what he says. He says, but we all, with an unveiled face. Now, remember, he's been talking about Moses. He says, we're looking at something with a face that isn't veiled. We, this thing that we're going to look at, we can see our face in it. It's unveiled. Now, look at what he says. But we all, with an unveiled face, are beholding... As in a mirror, the glory of the Lord. Now, listen to what he just said. I come to Christ. Holy Spirit speaks to me, takes the veil off. I say, yes, I believe. Blood of Jesus cleans me up. I'm given Jesus' righteousness. The Holy Spirit comes in now. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, I have the ability to live out the directives of the Creator. In doing that, if I could see a spiritual mirror and my face were unveiled, I would see on my face as I live out the directives of the Creator, I would see on my face God's glory. Now that's what he says. Holy Spirit comes in you. You begin to live out God's, God's uh, directives. If you had your face unveiled and you were looking in a spiritual mirror, you would see the glory of God. Now, look at what he says. 
We behold with an unveiled face, as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord. Now watch. Because we are being transformed. Now, listen to what he just said. Listen carefully. We are being transformed. That's the word. Now, there are two Greek words for change in the New Testament. One is alasso, that means just to change something. But this is the Greek word. We literally get the word, we transliterate this in the English, as a matter of fact, to metamorphosis. It's metamorphosis. And the idea is that I am totally changed into something I was not. I used to be this, but now I'm this. There is a metamorphosis that occurs. I'm not just changed. I am literally, through the power of the Holy Spirit, I am being transformed from here as a lost man into a man who represents, honors, and glorifies his father. There is a transformation. The second thing. He doesn't say, now listen. He doesn't say we are transforming ourselves. That's not what he says. If he said that, <laughs> I only know Baptists. Okay. I don't go against Methodists, Presbyterians, Catholics. I only know Baptists. This is where we miss it. If he had said, we are transforming ourselves, what that would mean is, if I go to church, read my Bible, pray, listen to Christian music, KSBJ is on my radio, the only station on my radio, I listen to it 24-7. I go to all the Christian concerts I can. I wear Christian clothes. If I do all that, and I do it long enough, and often enough, and well enough, I will transform my life. When that's not what the Bible ever teaches. He says we are being transformed. God, through His Spirit in us, is doing a transformation from the inside out. Now listen. So that church, Bible study, prayer, Christian music, all those things, listen, are a consequence of the transformation. They do not cause the transformation. If they caused the transformation, he would have said we are transforming. That's what he said. He said, we are being transformed. Something is happening to us from the outside. When reality, it is the outside, the Holy Spirit has come to indwell us. And now from the inside, upon us, the Holy Spirit is transforming us. He is changing us from what we used to be into something totally new. And it is a process He is doing. It's also a process. If he had said, we have been transformed, then what that would mean is the minute you get saved, you're perfect. You don't sin anymore. You don't yell at your wife anymore. You do what your wife says every day. Of course, most of us do that anyway. But you don't sin because you have been transformed. That's not what he says. He says we are being transformed in the Lord's every single day. There is a metamorphosis more and more and more where God's Holy Spirit is altering you from the inside out. He's doing it. And it's a process. 
you will, if you could, go back to the metaphor and look in that mirror. And if you could have the picture of the mirror the day you got saved, and then your picture of the mirror 10 years later, and you looked in, you'd be stunned at the difference in the depth and the shine of the glory on your face in the mirror. You're being transformed. You're going to be changed more in 10 years than you are in the first year. It always intrigued me when I was in my first church, and uh, I, I gave this, I used to really, really be hard. I'm really nice today, so I ought to tell you how bad I was back then. So I preached this really hard sermon, and this lady came forward and knelt, the only lady that came forward and knelt. Now, this lady lived across the street from the church. Every Sunday morning, she left her house, rain, shine, cold, hot. Every Sunday morning, she left her house, walked over to the church. The sanctuary was upstairs, so she walked up these steps, sat in her seat. Every Sunday morning, Sunday school, every Sunday night, church training, Sunday night worship, every Wednesday night, and any other time we had anything going on, she was there. I said, what's the big deal? She turned her 90th birthday when I was there. She's 90 years old. We got people that don't drive to church if it's raining in an air-conditioned car. She came every day, and so I give this really hard message. She walks down the aisle to repent. I'm looking at her going, honey, you haven't seen it in 10 years. Because what happens is, the more he transforms us, the more we despise sin and fall in love with him and his holiness. That transformation was powerful in her life, and it is a process. You don't start out perfect and imperfect. You start out imperfect, but God transforms you. So if you blow it, it doesn't mean the transformation is not working. It just means you've made a mistake. You've sinned. So you get up, you stop, you go back, and you allow him to continue to transform. So it's a process. You say, well, so here's what he says, right? Spirit comes in me. He goes to work transforming me into something I'm not. Gives me the power, right, to live out the commandments. I look in the mirror and the glory is brighter as I live out the process. Now the question is going to be, by really smart people, it's going to be, are you telling me that the glory of God, a glory that Jesus begged God for at the cross? You want to know Lord's Prayer? It's John 17. They're walking from the upper room to Gethsemane, and Jesus stops. And he prays with his disciples. And the first thing he prays is, Father, glorify your Son so that your Son may glorify you because the hour has come. You're telling me. That the glory of God is rooted in how many rules I keep. No. Because he adds one more phrase. Look at what he says. He talks about the fact that we are being transformed. Look at this. We all with unveiled face, 
are beholding in a mirror the glory of the Lord as we are being transformed into the same image. What image? The image of the Lord who is the Spirit. You're not being transformed into a rule keeper. No, 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 no. If he had not added that phrase, you might can make that argument. What he's saying is you're being transformed into the very image of Jesus Christ. He's changing you from the inside out so that in 10 years you're going to look a whole lot more like Jesus than you did the day you got saved. He's transforming you into the very image of Jesus, which is Genesis 1.26. Let us make man in our image. We are being transformed into the image of God. We were created to be through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the blood of Jesus. And if we could see it, we'd know it was true. We're being transformed into his image. Now, when I transform into his image, the rules are not the purpose for my life. They're the consequence. What's the most famous psalm? Come on. This is not a trick question. Okay, 23, very good. What's the first line in that song? What is it? It's embarrassing my music man gets every one of these right every Sunday. It's not embarrassing he does that. I'm glad he actually has a Bible. That's, I'm impressed any of my staff have, have one. This guy's exactly right. The Lord, right, is my shepherd. What's the next phrase? I shall not want. Now, this is embarrassing, but when I was a kid, I never could understand that phrase because I thought, well, if he's my shepherd, I should want him. That's how I interpreted that. I know it's embarrassing and it's not funny, but there you go. He says, the Lord is my shepherd, which is what happens in transformation. He's no longer just some name on the pages of the New Testament. He becomes, in the transformation, my shepherd. He becomes my director. I go where he tells me to go. He becomes my shepherd. And watch what happens. When he becomes my shepherd, what does he say? I shall not want. In other words, what? I won't covet. I don't care what you have. Because he's my shepherd. He hasn't led me to what you have. He's led me to what I have. I'm good with that. He's my shepherd. I've been transformed to allow him to be my shepherd. So I don't want what you want. I don't care. I don't covet. Not because I'm keeping a rule. But because it's a consequence of him being my shepherd. When I experience his presence in an empirical, experiential, personal encounter with a living God through the Holy Spirit in me, you know what happens? When you really sense his presence, you know what happens? You don't want any other God because no other God can satisfy your heart like he does. I'm not all of a sudden trying to keep the rule. I'm not going to have any other gods before me. I don't want any other gods. Because there's been a transformation. I don't want to cheat on my wife. Because when I really experience him, I see how he values her. And because he's my shepherd and I love him, I don't want to do anything that would damage what he values. I don't lie about other people because 
They're valued by the God whose image I'm being transformed into. And so I don't want to lie about anybody because I don't want to damage anything that God values. Abortion is no longer a rule. Pro-life becomes my heart because I don't want to damage anything that God gave life to. The transformation doesn't make me a rule keeper. It transforms me into his image so the rule keeping is a consequence, not a purpose. I am transformed. And I love this last phrase. From glory unto glory as indeed from the Lord who is the Spirit. He finishes up saying, look, all of this is from the Lord who is the Spirit, but here's what he says. Now listen. I come to Jesus. Sins are washed away. His holiness placed in me. His Holy Spirit now permanently indwells me. It's not temporary like the Old Testament. His Holy Spirit indwells me. His Holy Spirit goes to work from the inside out, transforming who I am, not into a rule keeper, but into the very image of Jesus Christ. If I could look back and see in a mirror, I would see the glory of God constantly being etched on my face through the transformation that's occurring. I will keep the Ten Commandments, not because that's the purpose, it's the consequence. I will go to church because it's a consequence. I will open up this book because it's a consequence. I will pray because it's the consequence. I will love people because it's a consequence. I will be what Jesus Christ wants me to be because it is the consequence, not the purpose. When that happens, and I look back at that mirror, and I'm this little lady in Oakwood, Texas, 90 years old. If she could have seen in her mirror, all she see was a brightness of God's glory. Now listen. A brightness the world can't take from her. I don't care anymore who the president is. I don't care who the Supreme Court is. I don't care who the senators are. I don't care who the House of Representatives are. I don't care. I'm still going to vote like this. I'm voting. Doesn't matter who they are. Doesn't matter what they do to us in this world. They cannot take God's glory out of the transformation born in us through our relationship with Jesus Christ. They can't touch that. And I think when you and I die, our love language shifts. There is a book called Five Love Languages. I think there are six. They list all these. My wife's, for example, is words of affirmation. I think there are six. I have the sixth one, uh, teasing. Some say harassment, but I'll go with teasing. It's gentler. It's my love language. You know it's your love language if you enjoy it as much as you give it. And when you're married to somebody whose words of affirmation and yours is teasing, okay, you know. I think when we die and all this is over, I think we all possess that language. Because it's coming a day 
When you and I die and we stand before Jesus, there's not a mention of any of our failures. They've already been covered in the blood. They're not mentioned ever again. Even what you do tomorrow is not going to be mentioned. What he does do, though, is he says, thanks for reflecting my glory wherever you were. When the creator says that to your soul in front of billions of people, you're going to carry that throughout eternity in the depths of your being. And that is the ultimate purpose of the transformation. Let's pray. Father, for those here that are not being transformed because they've never experienced Jesus, solve that for them today, Father. Speak to them. Lift the veil. Let them see. And let them understand they don't have a lot of opportunities there. Father, for those that you're calling to be a part of this fellowship and help us reflect your glory in this community. You speak and you make the difference. In Jesus Christ's name. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed. Staff and I are here. Christ speaks to your heart. You come.